Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 16. I'm your host, Otis Jivey. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing four stories for you about lakeside legends, ghastly games, fiendish forests, and malevolent memories. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which includes the first two stories... If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. And thank you for your support. It's time to get started, so lock your doors, turn the lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. Our first tale of terror this evening, from author Keith Daniels, is entitled The Forgotten. 
When hiking alone in my 25th year in the southwestern barrens of the Newfoundland interior highlands, I found myself lost for three days in which events took place that disturbed me in ways I thought not possible. In those 72 hours I wandered aimlessly, but not without purpose, into what I can only describe as some sort of grand hallucination or a waking fever dream. And the thought of those days in that lost wilderness brings me to tears now as I type these long-repressed words which have plagued me for a lifetime. Forgive my ramblings and my endlessly meandering mind and my thoughts, which run way too long and too wildly, and remember, please, that those same unending images plagued me in a way that you could never begin to imagine. Forgive me as I try to describe the agony that I endured in those days and throughout the sleepless nights since those steps I took into a world best left undisturbed. A long weekend on holiday from the teaching college seemed to me the perfect opportunity to rediscover places I had visited in my youth with an uncle, my mother's brother, who had trapped foxes and beavers and mink and the elusive arctic hares which used to run like lightning through those lands. He had taken me on camping trips into the barrens where we walked and talked and fished for trout in cold little pools and sat around small fires brewing tea in apple juice cans. He would tell me stories of his people, the Micmac, and how they would hunt the herds of woodland caribou that ran thick as sheep through the unending country in the days before the white man and the moose and the coyote came. He would tell me of the Botuk, who were all dead and gone to the last, and whose paths his elders had once shown to him. The same paths they used to tread on their annual migrations from the country to the shores of the sea and beyond. As he told me, if my memory is worth trusting after all these years, of the people that had lived there even before those native folk, whose language and paths and territories and legends and gods were witnessed only by the dead ancestors of our dead ancestors, and of whom there was no living memory other than the rumor that they had once lived in that land. He shared with me the subtle and minimalistic clues of their heritage that he had gathered from his elders, but much of it was unknown to him even in those days because he had been forced into learning by missionaries under the name of the Catholic Church at a young age, and they had schooled him in English and forbade the uttering of his mother tongue. From what I was able to gather from him, before he passed away in his forties, is not enough to fully describe the culture of those people. None of their language or customs were known to him, and of their origins he would simply state that they were of that place, not that they had originated there, but they had always been there. He did not know what had happened to them, nor did anyone that he had ever spoken to it seems to me now that the truest explanation of those people is that they once were there, but now they are not, and any pondering as to why this is the case is so far removed from the time of those folk that it becomes an irrelevant question. Of their territory he was very specific, and from this I gather that they were not a people of great number, possibly existing in one large community or tribe 
due to a reliance on localized resource, which was in great supply in the region. Or perhaps it was the locale of their last stand against some greater outside threat that was beyond their understanding or comprehension, and against which they resisted desperately until the speakers of legend forgot that they had ever occupied a place that was not this one. According to my uncle, it was within the barrens that they lived, and it was in this area, which remains in its state of undeveloped wilderness, as I write this sentence. It was because of this mystery that I was drawn to the region as a child, and I would daydream endlessly about hiking across the expanse in search of some evidence of those people, perhaps the remains of a settlement or burial site. I wanted desperately to know what had happened to them, who they were, and what their relationship with the land was. However, my uncle would always follow the same paths on our hikes into that country, and if I ever were to implore about some far-off location, beyond the regular areas explored, he would sternly redirect my attention to the current path and express a sometimes extreme anger towards my tendency to stray. Despite his urging and constant arguments about the dangers of being lost in the barrens, my eyes and my thoughts always wandered toward the horizon and the turns not taken. Finally, this inherent curiosity led me to set foot again into that vast and lonesome place, taking with me a small pack of provisions and a tent to set up in case of rain. It was my plan to set course from the stretch of the highway near the Middle Ridge Wilderness Reserve, near Bay d'Espoir, and trek due west. I would end my hike on the highway near the Anniapsquatch Mountains and hitch a ride to the nearest bus terminal. I set out on the 11th of October at dawn with the sun at my back and the retreating night ahead of me, grinning to myself as each step brought me farther and farther down the inevitable route that would take the rest of my life. The first day was difficult, as it took time for my body to adjust to the task at hand. Two years of studying at a desk were not the best preparation for my chosen route, which would take at least four days to traverse, but I forced myself onward, draining my water canteen every few hours. At last I reached the point of no return, where the last visible signs of human civilization would dip below the horizon. I stopped there and filled my canteen at a small stream, and looked around at the vast and deeply blue sky, and felt for the first time in years a sense of just how small I was within this wide and ancient land. I turned for a last look toward the highway, in the east, then continued to walk. In the middle of the afternoon I crossed through the remains of a forest that had burned long ago, where bleach-white bones of limbless tree husks stood in stark contrast against the rusty berry bushes that covered the high ground in that time of year. Later I stumbled on the remains of a campsite, the occupants of which had left dozens of shattered beer bottles strewn across the ground in a wide arc around their fire, as though they had been betting who could throw the farthest. That night I slept beneath the stars in a dry hollow between dwarf fir trees and watched the stars flickering overhead in the inky blackness. I had never felt so alive. The second day, 
I woke with a start as the little stunted trees around me shook with a thundering of footsteps, and I stood up to find my camp surrounded by a small herd of migrating caribou. There were about fifty, and they moved steadily eastward, chewing at the ground and puffing steam from their long muscles, and they had soon passed me by heading into the sunrise. That day I walked slowly, because of the muscles cramping in my legs, but in a few hours I had found my pace again and moved steadily westward into that place, opposite to the journey of the caribou. The land began to change as I carried on, with the stingy semi-tundra hardening into a dry and unforgiving soil that resisted any pressure, and if I closed my eyes I could almost convince myself I was walking on asphalt. By noon I came to the edge of a wide valley, carved by glaciers and millennia of erosion, into a sloping bowl that stretched nearly to the horizon on the other side. There was a river flowing through it, and I decided that I would rest there. It took until late afternoon for me to come to the river, and when I did, I was more tired than I could ever remember being. My feet were blistered, my shoulders aching from my pack, and the smell of sweat in my clothes was so strong that I stripped naked and wrung them out in the cold, clear water. I began to think, then, that my trip was not as well planned as I had thought. I had only just enough food for three days, although I was sure I had packed more, and I hadn't brought a change of clothes because I thought it would save space. My mood turned sour, and I stared angrily at the valley wall before me and made the hasty choice to climb it before setting camp. It would be dark by seven, but I didn't care. I was so fed up with myself that I just wanted to get the hike over with as fast as possible. I didn't dare turn back, because if my friends at the college got word that I had forfeited my great adventure, well, they would never let me hear it out. And despite my bad temper and my sudden impatience, I still longed to see the expanse in its entirety. I marched up the hillside, faster than was wise, through the thinning trees and over rocks and under arm-like, scooping branches around another larger herd of caribou that flowed toward the river in a flood of fur and antlers. The hours flew by and still I climbed on in my stupidity, and it was well after sunset that I stumbled blindly onto the crest of a small hill at the valley's edge and set camp for the night. I ate ravenously and laughed at my own stubbornness and lay in my sleeping room watching the flames before me, quickly falling into a deep and exhaustive sleep. I woke in the night to my little fire dying into feeble, smoldering coals and struggled out of my sleeping room, fighting to keep from shuddering in the unbelievably cold air. The temperature had dropped unexpectedly and frost was gathering in the tips of the surrounding vegetation, glowing in the soft blue light cast down by the moon, which was waning but, as of yet, bright enough to illuminate my campsite. My hands were numb. And, after struggling to get the fire going again, I gave up and fumbled in my pack for the tent. In the minutes it took to set it up, I found myself jumping at small sounds and turning quickly to look over my shoulder. The silence of that hill and the night was staggering, and each movement I made to adjust the tent straps or stamp down a peg or throw my belongings inside it brought an unbearable sensation down upon me as though I would give myself away. 
but to whom? At last, I had erected the tiny shelter and pulled myself inside it head first and wrapped myself in my sleeping robe to settle once again into a peaceful sleep. It was at this point I realized I'd forgotten to tie the tent flap shut. Being as tired as I was, I decided that a small draft would be tolerable, and I tucked myself in doubly against the cold, with only my head protruding. I lay there for a while, listening to the sounds of the barrens outside, of the persistent fall breeze rustling against the canvas, and the last few coals sputtering out in the cold, of the movement of caribou in the valley below grunting in the dark. And the night drew on and I lay there, breathing quietly and watching my breath turn into a moist fog that hung in the tent like the smoke of a doused candle. I listened with increasing intensity to the minute sounds of the world outside, which seemed to be growing more and more sparse as the moments passed. The winds became gentler and less chaotic, and after a time they ceased completely, and the air hung heavily over the world. In that stillness and absolute silence came the suspicion that there was something moving nearby, outside my little canvas tent. I did not see a shadow cast by the moon against the thin and tightly bound fabric, nor did I hear a noise that would give away the approach of an entity into my small camp. I felt, in that void of sound and light, which surrounded me entirely, a change in the air of which I cannot accurately explain. The very night itself seemed to be drawing in on me, pressing itself into my skin and brushing obscenely against the space near the back of my neck and shoulders, as if to suggest the presence of some invisible form that had wandered unwelcomed into that place and passed through it without noticing my huddled form laying crumpled in fear across its path. I held myself still, reducing my breaths to shallow murmurs, and fought against the hollow pain raising in my stomach. And when the sound of my own low gasps for air became unbearably distracting, I took in a lungful and held it, waiting against hope as cold, stinging sweat oozed into my eyes. I used the last of my faltering willpower to resist the urge to blink, and focused the entirety of my attention on the narrow window left by the unfastened flap of canvas hanging above my feet. I waited. In all of that vast and empty nothingness out there, I could plainly see something pale run past the open end of my tent. I gasped for air, unable to stop my body from emitting a small shriek of fear, and I lurched forward, plunging my head out through the flap tent and into the night. I stared all around, scanning the hillside for as far as I could see, but there was nothing there. Slowly, quietly, I backed into the tent and tied the flap tightly shut, and buried myself in my sleeping roll, curling into a shaking ball, with my knees at my chest and covered myself entirely. I was still laying in that position, still shivering, still drenched in a sticky, waxy sweat, when I lifted my face from under the blanket to realize the sun was starting to rise. I exited the tent, slowly at first, and then springing wildly around, darting left and right, hoping to confuse any intruder that may be watching and waiting for a chance to do a surprise attack. But there was only me alone on that hill. 
I stuffed my tent hastily into my bag and gathered my few possessions, and noticed with a sideways glance that my fire coals were still smoking hot as I turned to leave camp, despite the fire having gone out hours ago. With the morning sun warming my back, I started to regain some of my nerve, and within an hour I was convincing myself that what I had seen could be nothing more than a lone animal passing by. Perhaps it was a straggler caribou from the herd in the valley, and perhaps my heightened senses during that moment were a symptom of my being alone for nearly three days. I told myself, out loud, as though to an audience, that there was nothing to be afraid of. Now, I figured, I ought to be at about the halfway point of my hike, but as I examined my small and tattered map, I realized that I must have walked slightly off course, either to the north or south. None of the landmarks that I had expected to see from the map were visible, and the wide valley that I crossed the previous day didn't seem to show up at all on paper. I was lost, but what kept me from panicking was that I knew if I kept walking westward, I would eventually reach the highway, as long as I kept my head straight and didn't start going in circles. It would have been possible for me to turn back the way I'd come, but something kept me going onward, deeper into those barrens, and away from the valley I had crossed. Here, the landscape had undergone another transition, and where before there were long stretches of rolling hills, now the rises lay low against the earth, and I felt as though I could see an impossible distance in each direction. The graceful topography of the valley had given way to an endless stony plain scattered with enormous erratic boulders that rose as high as houses and rested uneasily on points that suggested they might topple given the slightest amount of pressure. Upon their surfaces were carved crude forms like the dashes of some lost runic language, or perhaps a shade of animals worn away beyond recognition. Upon closer inspection, I decided they must be weathered markings of windblown sand, nothing more. It made the most sense. The vegetation was reduced to scattered wiry brushes, the reddish-brown of clotted blood, and the lichen grew thick upon the ground. I walked on and shuddered at the bizarre echoing of my own footsteps, off those stone giants, and did not stop to rest until the moon overtook the sun in the evening sky. I wasted no time with fires that night. Immediately I set my tent on a growth of green lichen and climbed inside, fastening myself and my few belongings securely within the confines of those canvas walls, and wrapped myself tightly in my blanket. Reaching into my pack, I found my rations gone, lost through a rip in the fabric. Only my water canteen and a few curious stones remained. I shut my eyes and prayed for sleep, as I had only gotten a few hours since my first camp. I wanted desperately to feel the embrace of unconsciousness and for the aching in my muscles and stomach to subside. Even a nightmare would be better than this, but sleep did not come, and in the minutes that followed I fell again into that deep sense of dread that I had experienced the night before on the hilltop. A deathly quiet had formed around me, and the sounds of my own body seemed immeasurably loud. I struggled to keep my entire body hidden inside the sleeping roll. It was slightly too small on my feet or the top of my head or my back 
kept protruding into the cold air of the tent, and in those moments I shuddered and frantically worked to conceal myself again. I knew that nothing could see me inside the tent, but it didn't matter. I started to wonder if I had left the flap open again, and, too frightened to check and see, I remained in my blanket cocoon, awaiting morning or some terrible end to the silence. From outside the tent there came a faint rustling noise. I held my breath again, focusing entirely on remaining still and listening, but there was no need. The sound grew louder. It became clear to me that there was somebody or something nearby, and that they were not alone. The rustling grew louder still, and there was a shifting, and a scraping of something soft against the stony floor of the night, and then a grinding noise, like the crunching of dry gravel beneath a wheel. I grabbed my forearm and pinched hard, hoping to wake myself from the dream, digging in my fingernails and drawing blood and I did not wake. I was not asleep. Slowly, with a movement I was sure wouldn't make a sound, I pulled the blanket down from over my face and forced open my eyes. Outside there was the unmistakable flickering light of a fire, and it flashed and cast silhouettes of grotesque forms, which licked and rippled across the canvas, and I could not bring myself to look away. They were like naked shapes of men or women, with their unclothed bodies bared against the night, and prancing fluidly by the movement of the flame and their own otherworldly dance. And their long, distorted forms wound themselves around me in my tiny cold bed and sucked the breath from my body as they lifted their arms to the night and sang in a tongue that seemed not to come from their mouths but from the very earth itself, and sounded to me nothing like speech at all. And they were not like men or women. From their bodies there came impossible shapes, like antlers or tails or branches of trees or the billowing of clouds or the glistening forms of some rotting thing that had once been alive. They swayed with the fire and chanted and transformed, and they heard the screams of terror bursting from my own shapeless mouth and approached the tent, and then I knew that there was no hope, and my eyes filled with sweat and tears, and blinded me so I did not see their faces when they came, and dragged me away into the horror that waited out there in that cruel and loathsome night. I woke in the morning, with frost in my hair. My tent and my pack were gone, and around me, in a perfect circle, lay the remains of burnt wood and coals and bones blackened from roasting. I rose and stared around me, my eyes darting from one boulder to the next, expecting to see one of my attackers out there watching me. But there was nothing. I walked in a circle, jumping and clapping, hard in an attempt to bring back life to my numb feet and hands. My boots had been taken as well and all the while staring around in the dim early light. On the ground, there was a chunk of burnt meat with a full day and night's worth of hunger gnawing at me. I picked it up and sunk my teeth into it, hardly chewing before swallowing and tearing off another bite. On the outside, the meat was black and hard, but inside, the crust was still raw, red, and warm. Blood dripped down my chin and soaked my clothes, and it seemed to tense up 
when I sunk in my teeth as though the muscle were still alive. I couldn't stop. I gorged on the strange flesh, and when it was gone, I licked my hands and sat on the ground staring up at the orange and violet sky and broke into sobs of joy or relief or despair. I cannot say what it was for sure. And I started to walk again with my back to the sun. After a time, there came the sounds of claws or hooves on the ground, but I did not turn back to look. I kept walking westward, even when the great stones on either side began to creak and groan, as though they would fall and crush my body into nothingness. I did not stop when the chant began again in my wake, and the sky became choked with clouds and the air grew hot and moist, like the cavity of a freshly dead corpse. The smell of meat was in my throat, and I gagged and fell to my knees, but my retching brought up only ash and bile, so I got to my feet again. The sound of the dancing, chanting things followed me in my hysteria throughout that day, and the night that followed, out of the hard plain and over fields of yellow grass, and through the stinking bog where my bleeding souls turned the water red. I dared not turn to face them until the next day after I had passed between two toppled mounds of stone that perhaps once had been placed by hand. And it was in that moment when I finally looked behind me and saw that there was nothing there. Sometimes I think that was worse than everything that had happened before. By noon I had given up and toppled face down on the ground and lay there waiting to die. I wanted to die. I did not shudder when I heard footsteps approaching or when the shouting started or when the hands closed tightly around my shoulders, turning me onto my back so all I could see was the blinding white light of the sun in my eyes. It was a hunter staring down at me, shaking me with a look on his face that told me he thought I was dead. He half-dragged, half-carried me to the roadside, just over a kilometer away, and helped me into the back of his truck where I lost myself in a fit of tears and screaming, and insisted that it couldn't be real. He drove me to the hospital, urging that I have the food and water he pushed in my face, and I thanked him even though I was too tired to eat. I never told the doctors what I had seen because I know they would have surely had me locked away, and perhaps they would have been right to. Perhaps the medication they would have prescribed me might have helped me with the nightmares and the hallucination I've had since then, but I've always been too afraid to let them examine me. Maybe they'd make the horrors go away and make me see the nonsense of my fears. Maybe they'd prove my memories to be false, imaginings. But if they didn't? I tell myself that those visions I experienced were figments of my fevered mind, brought up by some long-past trauma in my youth and that whatever had occurred in those barrens years ago is lost in time. The dead are gone, and the past is past. But is that the truth? In those spaces, uninhabited for countless years, is there not something lingering of the place it once had been, or of the ones who lived there? Could there, perhaps, in some long-forgotten corner of those endless barrens, remain the memory of what had existed there before our time, like the decay of a shout or cry or laughter that rings on and on 
but grows increasingly distant and distorted. Could it be that a shadow remains hidden away of the life that had been? Those voices that had spoken in tongues unknown may still be ringing, echoing faintly the response of the land to the human voice, or some other voice that had made a sound. Some wisp of thought may still linger in the roots of grasses, or the hollows of ancient trees, or the dusty hard spaces between the ground and flattened stone, which wait with inconceivable patience to be kicked aside by the toes of some restless intruder who knows not where he walks. And if he stops abruptly and listens, with a sudden vivid sense of his loneliness, and the pulsing in his chest, and the breath of hot wind against the back of his ragged scalp, and twists around in his sweaty clothes, and holds his breath in his throat, in a moment of painful and terrible anticipation, does he hear it? I'd rather believe I'm insane. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Our second story this evening is entitled The Ragman by author Paul Breen Jr. He's waiting, he's watching, he's biding his time. He stares as you're sleeping, it's just after nine. You're holding a blanket in comfortable heaven. He's sneaking towards you, the clock says eleven. You dream about candy and chocolate and fun. He's nearly beside you. It's just turning one. You don't see him coming. There's no time to flee. You wake up. You scream. It's his time. It's three. An old children's tale. The Ragman. I've always had a keen interest in horror. Ever since I was a young boy and my friend Richard and I used to sneak into his living room at night when I'd stay over. We'd stick on whatever scary film we could find on VHS, or we'd turn on his TV and watch one that we'd spotted in the TV guide. I remember watching the movie Halloween when I was roughly 12. It terrified me, sent chills up my spine, and made me peek over my shoulder for the next week, but it intrigued me. I kept lapping up all the ghost stories and horror stories that I could get my hands on. I watched The Exorcist when I was 14 and it freaked the hell out of me. 
I didn't sleep for about a month, I'd say. And that was also roughly around the time that I discovered the delights of Stephen King and James Herbert novels. Nerve-shredding chills on every page, and there was just so many of them that I could barely have the time to read them all. No matter how old I got, no matter how mature I became, I never lost that spirit. That need to be frightened by a horror story or movie. That desire to feel terrified. That's probably why I turned to writing horror myself. I just wanted to give someone else the thrill that I'd been seeking all throughout my adolescence. In time, I unfortunately grew desensitized to scary movies and books. It's part of growing up. The feeling of fear when watching a terrifying movie alone with the lights off began to get diluted as I became older, and I began looking for bigger and better scares. Searching for ghost stories or other tales of dread that people had told me were real became the next big thing. Not the stories that you might see on the TV screen, and then switch off and simply try to forget. Not the tale in the pages of a book that escaped from... by shutting it. I went from town to town, and all over the web hearing all the ramblings of the paranoid and the true believers, and after years of searching I found something. That experience with the truly macabre that came with the chill up my spine. The peeking over my shoulder. The difficulty of sleeping simply by knowing it. The most disturbing and heart-wrenching, fear-inducing tale of menace that I'd ever heard. Well, to be honest, I am a little biased, and I'll tell you why. It's simple. It happened to me. Here's my account with the entity known as the Ragman. In my home, you could find all sorts of horror paraphernalia. Old books, haunted dolls, crucifixes used during real-life exorcisms, and just about every scary movie you could mention. Give me a thunderstorm and a camera and I could give you a truly terrifying scene by simply filming any part of my house. Still, everybody has their vices. Mine was something I was proud of. It had become difficult to meet women, though. Most of them couldn't stay in my house too long, and it's no wonder why. There just simply isn't enough cushions in the world to block your sight from that much frightening imagery. That is just the way I am, however, and say what you want about me. I don't change to suit someone else, a trait that I find to be a rare quality. Let me start with the tale of the Ragman by giving you a little history lesson in folklore. While you may not be aware of it, the story's been around for centuries. Supposedly, it was taken up by the Grimm brothers at some stage and became a fairy tale of sorts. This, of course, was back in a time that all fairy tales were darker and more chilling. Back in the day when Disney didn't own the rights to them. When they had a more sinister effect on the imagination. Eventually, it was forgotten as the details were known to be too grim, excuse the pun, for a child's bedtime story. Parents refused to tell the story to their kids, and it was lost over time. If you ask me, they were right, too. I had never heard of the story in all my years of researching tales of terror, but that changed on the evening of November 12th. The date I received a painting. 
It was a morning like all others, nothing special or noteworthy about it, therefore. I will not try to bore you with the unimportant details of exactly what happened in work and get right into the story. I went to work, as I do every weekday for eight hours, in the planning and payroll section of the local authority's office, sorting out invoices for local businesses and decades-old planning files. Boring work, basically. And like all other days, I was glad and exhausted when the clock said five. I immediately went home, eager to get online and talk to my friends over Facebook about a party which I was planning to attend that night. Nothing special, just a couple of drinks, a scary movie or two, to celebrate the fact that it's Friday and I had the rest of the weekend to enjoy and because I still had Halloween fever. I always tried to remain social amongst my immediate circle of friends. Most of them I had already converted into diehard horror fans. Some of them hadn't quite become comfortable with it, which also suited me. If you're not intrigued, you'd be scared, and that's what it's all about. I reached the patio doors at the front of the house, and just as I was about to find the front door key hidden within the rest of my keys, I spotted a package just inside the closed patio door. It was large, surrounded by brown paper, and it was covered with a two thin lines of white string, one horizontal, one vertical, meeting in the middle in a large knot. I didn't need to open it to know that by its dimensions, it was some kind of painting or poster, framed, as the outline of the paper suggested. It had a small note attached to it, which I picked up and read. Title, The Ragman. This should offer adequate material for a story. I was a little perplexed. It wasn't entirely unheard of for people to send ideas, objects, or pictures of a scary scenario to me. Normally it was done online, and it almost always came with the name of the contributor so that they could have their names in the finished piece. But this trinket came with nothing of the sort, not even a return address. Still, I was curious, so I took it inside. After settling myself with a hot drink and taking my coat off, I undid the string that hid the mysterious picture underneath. As the brown paper fell from view, I was struck with the beautiful but haunting image that dwelled on the other side. It was a large painting, roughly three feet by two. It depicted the edge of some kind of haunted woodland on a mound encompassing the left portion of the painting, overlooking some kind of plantation-style house, and surrounding land on the right. The plantation land was being toiled by laborers and landowners that watched on, drinking some kind of iced beverage, I assumed, seemingly oblivious to a menacing and daunting, long-limbed and aberrant figure standing on the mound at the foreground to the left of the scene. He was wearing some kind of strange pink-striped, dark and ragged suit that barely covered the base of each of his twisted limbs. His fingers extended, pointing toward the house in the distance, They seemed disproportionate to the rest of his strangely thin body. He had an odd hunch on his back, which facilitated a tear on the suit. He had badly worn shoes on his feet that were torn at the seams, much like the rest of his attire, and he pointed from the trees into the direction of a house in the distance, his face trapped in some kind of twisted laugh. His eyes were pale and white, giving some kind of deathly omen, 
and his smile stretched from one ear of his large head to the other, bearing gritty, yellowish teeth. His long, dark hair strewn past his shoulders. He seemed to even absorb the color from his side of the picture, leaving the whole tree-line melancholic with a deep sense of foreboding. The picture genuinely unnerved me. I put it down, propped it up against the wall, and examined it intimately, my eyes focusing on every detail, noticing that there was no date or artist's signature anywhere to be seen. I felt a chill up my spine, that cold sensation I had felt when I was frightened as a young boy. Whoever sent me the picture had indeed given me good material, and I thought to myself, bravo. I hung the picture up in the spare room downstairs connected to the sitting room. It was originally a utility room that had been converted into a spare room by the landlord two years ago, right before I moved in. I would occasionally let a friend sleep in the room now, as I didn't have anyone else to share the rent with at the moment. The picture sat above the radiator on the wall opposite the entrance to the room, so that it could be seen from the living room if you simply kept the door open. It would help with the inspiration. Later that night, one by one, my friends showed up. We partook in some drinks, put on a DVD in the background, not really paying attention, and discussed life in general, but we also discussed the gift that I had received at great length. The painting became the life of the party, as I mentioned it, to everyone when they came in. People discussed the disturbing imagery in the painting, the fact that there was no name to take the credit for the painting, and also the title. Like myself, none of them had ever heard of the Ragman. They all had their two cents on the art, and then requested that I keep the door closed for the rest of the party, which I did. It seemed a little too eerie for some. For a time afterwards, people threw ideas at me for what kind of story I should write with it. One of them thought I should write about the plantation owner in Civil War era, and that the ragman should be an avenging angel to get vengeance on the evil land baron for cruelty to slavery. One of them postulated that the ragman be a disfigured slave himself, his gaunt body, having been tortured by the master of the house. I thought the best suggestion, however, was when someone mentioned that he should simply come out of the haunted forest for victims. It should not be related to the fact that the man owned slaves. On the contrary, he should just show up out of the woods for the rich man's children. Stories are always scarier when they involve innocent children, I thought. Eventually, as the evening dwindled, people started to leave. The drinks and tiredness had gotten the better of them. I offered the room if anyone wanted to stay, but they all politely declined. Some of them said they didn't want to get up in the morning and have to go then, and would instead rather leave now. Some said they just preferred the comfort that only their bed could give them, but I knew the real reason. The conversation about the painting had unsettled most of them. As the night came to a close, I walked the last guest to the door, an old friend of mine, Matt. He smelled like there was a thick blanket of beer surrounding him. I thought of myself that it was a good thing I wasn't driving. As I said my goodbyes, I asked one last time his opinion on my acquisition. So, what do you think of the picture? He 
placed his hand up to his mouth as his response came with a slight burp that reek of alcohol. Very creepy, he said. Gives me the chills. I hate the way he's just pointing at you with that messed up smile. Anyways, good luck. I'll see you later. He answered, fighting off another beer-soaked burp. I closed the door behind him and locked it. I began turning off the lights in the house, one by one, starting with downstairs. I decided to leave the empty bottles of beer on the sitting room table until tomorrow morning when I'd have the energy to clean. I saw from the lack of light under the doorway to the spare room that the light had already been switched off, and I flicked the switch in the living room before making my way up to bed. One by one, I turned the lights off. The one in the downstairs hall, the one on the stairs, bit by bit the house was succumbing to the darkness of the winter night, culminating in the final switch for the landing at the top of the stairs. Then I entered my bedroom, took my clothes off, apart from my t-shirt and my boxer shorts, turned off the final light in my room, and then got into bed. I decided to even leave brushing my teeth until the morning. After all, I'd been drinking, and I didn't care about my dental hygiene. I just wanted to sleep more than anything. I lay there in the darkness for a few minutes, waiting for the grip of my dreams to hoist me to sleep when a thought struck me. I felt that tingling down my spine, so much worse than before, and for the first time in years, I panicked as the thought of pure horror made me recoil under the covers like a child. Did Matt say that the figure in the painting pointed outwards? The thought swam around my mind like a, a hungry shark. The figure in the painting, the ragman, pointed towards the plantation house. That much I was certain. I had spent some time earlier studying every inch of that artistry and was convinced that's what I saw. Yet Matt said, clear as day, I hate the way that it's just pointing at you with that messed up smile. My mind flooded with rational thoughts to explain how he must have been mistaken. How, perhaps, the alcohol he had consumed had gotten the upper hand on his better judgment. I composed myself as I lay half under the covers. I laughed to myself quietly at that moment, dismissing my fears as flights of fantasy, dreams of an older horror fan looking for the attention his imaginary counterparts had received in the stories he had read his whole life. I lay there still for a time. All I could do was see the image of the picture in my mind. I studied it again and again in my head, and every time I regarded the painting, the figure near the woods, the ragman, pointed at the plantation house. I knew that I would not get sleep with this notion itching at the back of my mind, so I decided to go downstairs to check the damnable picture myself. What's the worst that could happen? I have a haunted painting in my house, I thought to myself. Maybe it could be worth something. With this thought, I sat up and turned on the bedside lamp, which lay on the locker next to me. I uncovered myself and walked over to the switchlight on the other end of the room near the door. I flicked it on and proceeded out onto the landing. The cold air in the house tickled my skin in my disheveled state of undress, but that was the least of my concerns. 
I made my way downstairs, turning on all the other switches again in reverse order from before until I was in the living room. I stood there for a few seconds, staring at the spare room door. It was strange, but I felt uneasy at that moment. All the experience I had with true terror, whether it was in the words of an author or the celluloid of a silver screen, they were now working against me, giving me a million reasons not to open the door. Perhaps there was a demonic entity on the other side. Perhaps there was a monstrous creature ready to devour my very soul and take me, screaming into the pits of hell. Perhaps it was just a picture. I took a deep breath and opened the door. I was greeted with the dark room. On the wall, on the opposite end, hung the painting, its features, fogged and jaded, a mere silhouette in the black pitch. I flicked on the light, expecting the outstretched arms of the devil himself to reach from the framed menace on the wall, but instead, it was just the opposite. A simple picture. I looked at it, squinting to capture all the details, and because of the sudden introduction of light into the room, and saw that the figure indeed did point toward the front of the painting. Maybe it was wrong, I thought. It was hours ago, and I didn't really look for that long. I must have simply been mistaken. I took one last glance as I switched off the light. It was more than at the front of the painting that this very long, bony, disproportionate finger was pointing. They were pointing at me. I closed the door. Mere hours later is when things began to get interesting. I awoke from a deep sleep at 3.07 to the distant, rhythmic sound of tapping. My eyes weren't heavy. I wasn't still fighting the compunction to drift back to my dreams. I was fully aware as if I hadn't slept at all. The tapping sound took all of my focus. With the lack of light in the room, it seemed as though the strange sound was all that existed. Even in my state of complete awareness, it took several seconds to register the intrusion on my thoughts. I looked over at the time on the clock on my bedside locker and noticed that it was just after three. My mind studied the sound, which came every two seconds or so in increments of three light knocking sounds, and determined that whatever was tapping was hitting against something wooden. It sounded too far away to be coming from within my bedroom, too. If I cared to guess, I would have said that it came from downstairs. I sat up in bed and turned on the bedside lamp. I sat there for a time, in my tiny kingdom of light, as I listened studiously to the tapping sound made my way downstairs against my instincts in an attempt to find the source. By the time I had made it to the base of the stairs, the tapping stopped. I checked the whole floor meticulously after turning on all the lights, leaving the spare room to last, but I could not find where it had come from. I was somewhat hoping to confront a rational reason for the sound, but could not decide whether it was more frightening to let my imagination create the cause or find it the cause of something else that was supernatural. I eventually went back to sleep, my answers unfulfilled. This happened to me at the same time for the next few days. I'd waken to the tapping sound from my sleep 
into a state of complete awareness, and it was always at the same time. Always at 3.07. Most nights I wouldn't even get out of bed because I never found where it came from, but I knew. I didn't want to believe it, but deep in the depths of my soul, I knew where it came from. After a while, I eventually had to admit defeat with the painting. I decided to devote myself to investigating its origins in great detail, and I took the sheet from the bed in the spare room and draped it over the picture. It had declared war now, and I was going to delve into the rabbit hole and see what I could find. I decided that I wouldn't tell my friends about what foulness had befallen me. The last thing I wanted them was mocking me. They would just say that I was getting what I deserved, searching for ghosts and other entities, only to find one. Not exactly a surprise. I could already hear their jeers. I spent the next two weeks looking for some clues to the origin of the painting, and for a history behind the story of the ragman to no avail. Then something really strange happened. I awoke from a deep sleep at 3.07 to the distant, rhythmic sound of tapping. It was early morning of November 28th, Sunday. I lay there in my bed as usual, the sound of the tapping goading me to come search for it, attempting to spur me to action. As I lay there, observing the thin rays of moonlight that breached the confines of the otherwise dreary, dark bedroom, my eyes began to become accustomed to the lack of light. More and more of the room came into focus, the tapping in the distant corner of the house mocking my attempts at rest. I was getting agitated with the unwelcome disturbances, and they seemed tame at this point. I mean, a horror story about a man who's annoyed by a tapping sound? It was not enough in itself. I was starting to get bored with the antics at this point. Then I heard a loud crash. The unmistakable sound of falling wood from downstairs. The sudden, thundering ruction echoed within the entire house and caused me to sit bolt upright. The adrenaline took control and prepared my body to flee as fast as my muscles would physically allow. The bone-chilling thunderclap was followed by a slightly quieter sound of a similar nature, indicating that something had indeed fallen downstairs. It was obvious that it was the painting. That was the way my mind worked now. Something went wrong. It was the painting. I composed myself momentarily and got up out of bed to confront whatever the soundmaker was. It was becoming second nature now, turning on the lights in the house to check the darkened corners, to peer into the hidden vestiges of my house of horrors. It was a nerve-wracking time indeed, but this night was different. The tapping was low and agitating, much like the noise didn't want to wake me, rather than just to know that something was there. This was different. This was aggressive and violent. I made my way into the living room and stared at the spare room door. I gathered the courage that I had inside me and I opened it. As I stood there, I gazed into the gloom and noticed that the window next to the bed was open. The wind from outside was blowing the curtains wildly, their fabric fighting against the gust as if desperate to stay attached to the window frame. 
I felt a cold breeze. Since I was only in my boxer shorts and t-shirt again, I shuddered for a moment. The painting was lying on the floor underneath its designated hanging place, its back facing me, and the sheet was lying on the ground next to it. I uttered my annoyance at the open window, thinking that in my lack of sleep, I left it open at some point. I was making a habit these days of going into the room occasionally to check that the sheet still covered the picture, or some ominous force hadn't removed it. I walked over to the window and made an attempt to close it, jamming the wooden frame down hard. It stuck halfway and required more force, but eventually I got it closed. I stepped over the sheet strewn across the floor and picked up the picture, turning it over in the process. My eyes widened as a sickening shot of fear ran all the way down my spine, causing all the hairs to stand up on the back of my neck, making my limbs go numb and my whole mind shut down out of terror. I dropped the painting and fell straight backwards into a seated position, forgetting the pain of falling as my arms lay behind me to keep me up, staring at the picture intently with a newfound horror that I could barely keep contained. I was afraid to break eye contact from the picture which lay diagonally facing me, in all its malice, empty of the ragman. I lay there motionless as I realized that everything about the painting was just as it had always been, but in place of the figure on the left side was an empty mound. My eyes took a few seconds to process this earth-shattering information. The mound on the left of the picture, where the ragman had been standing, watching the door to the spare room, was no longer in the picture. How had this happened? Was the picture truly haunted? How could this be? Where was he? That last question was the most disturbing. After looking at the void in the painting for this extended time, I noticed something else was equally disturbing. One of the trees that lay on the outskirt of the wood, more specifically the tree that the ragman's right hand was on, as he pointed outwards, had another feature. Scratches of some kind. No, not scratches. Etchings from weeks of tapping against it every night. At least, that's how I perceived it. I got up from the floor with the unbalanced flare of a man running for his life. I left the room, leaving the painting lying where it had fallen, and closed the door behind me. I flew into the living room, desperate to get away, but to go anywhere but here. I bumped into the table in the living room with force and fell in a heap on the floor, pain searing through my leg as I caught my shin bone off the edge of the table. I was only down for seconds before I staggered upwards, heading straight for the living room door. A loud, powerful, devilish cackle filled the air, coming straight from the room that I had left in such a terrified hurry. My senses were in full alert as I ran into the hallway screaming in white-knuckle terror. The laugh began to die off as I got further from the spare room. I didn't dare look back, instead running for the front door. I fumbled with the handle as I attempted to open it, the cackle then started to get progressively louder as whatever was making the sound was seemingly getting closer to me. I was too afraid to look back, 
too scared that it might be my last time if I did. My mind attempted to prompt me to my terrible thoughts, feigning the feeling of something touching the back of my neck, causing my muscles to tense at the thought and my mouth to emit a horrified scream. I realized in that moment that the door was locked, as it had always been, and that the keys were upstairs. I slumped to the ground, sobbing, and with as much courage as I could scrape from inside me, I turned to look down the hall, down in the direction of the living room door, down toward the ever-increasing laugh. Then nothing. No evil demon. No wretched, horrible creature. No ragman. Needless to say, I didn't sleep that night. I certainly didn't try in that house. I went to a motel, leaving the place locked up, just the way that it was when all that happened. I didn't even put the painting back up. That night I just stayed in the motel with my laptop, checking my friend's Facebook profile, to see if anyone mentioned anything similar happening to them. But there was nothing. I returned to the house the next day, under the protection of daylight. I decided to take another sick day off work. The restless nights meant that I didn't have the energy some days to go in. I had nearly used up all my payable sick days at this point, but it was for a worthy cause. I unlocked the front door and walked into the house. On the outside inspection, you would have not had a thought that anything had gone wrong in the house at all. I walked down the hall toward the sitting room and entered. I felt a sudden chill at the sight of the open spare room door and the fallen picture that lay opposite. I could see, even from the sitting room doorway, that the figure of the ragman had returned to the painting. I walked over for a closer inspection. It seemed as though it was all there, as it was the day I received it. The figure was there, the trees had returned to normal. I was both relieved and confused. I had made my decision that I would stay in the house again that night, but this time I was going to set up cameras around the house. If horror movies had taught me anything, it's that you need proof, lest you be branded a lunatic. I spent most of that day procuring all the equipment I could to record anything that would happen in the house that night. I had some of it already, being an avid fan of films, I can't say that the rest didn't cost a pretty penny, but I was eager to catch that thing inside my house. I felt a little safer at the thought of all the corners being watched, but still, the more time that passed that day, the darker it got as it reached night, the more I felt uneasy. The longer that I spent in that house, the more I felt supernatural eyes watching my every move, waiting for me to fall asleep. At roughly midnight, I did. I awoke from a deep sleep at 3.07 to the distant, rhythmic sound of tapping. This time, I was ready, though. I was already dressed before the clock turned 3.08. I had already had the lights in the house on so that the cameras could catch everything, no matter how small or brief. I went down the stairs and into the living room, as I reached the door, the tapping sound disappeared. I opened the door to look in. The spare room had been left open. The picture returned to where it had been the last few weeks. This sheet had even been removed, 
just to see if what happened before it would repeat itself. There was a mounted camera on a tripod behind the living room table, facing the open spare room door. A light at the side of the camera shone into the direction of the room, and the light in the sitting room was still on to catch whatever would be there. When I opened the door and looked inside, I saw the painting was hung up where I had left it after I prepared the cameras, absent the ragman. It stood there staring at me. The mound empty, the plantation house alone. The trees free of their friend who had been terrorizing me. I let out a quiet wail out of shock. I began to cower, reaching for a wall behind me so that I could not be ambushed. The tapping sound returned, this time accompanied by the sound of laughter. I don't know how I knew, there was no way. But I felt that the laughter was sarcastic, as if I had angered him and he was laughing at my failed attempt, my attempt to make him look the fool. The laughter resonated throughout the house, but I was close enough to discern its origin. It was coming from the kitchen. I mustered up all my available courage and slowly moved toward the dining room and then the kitchen. I could hear the sound of pots and cups banging against the counters as if someone was having a tantrum. The laughter was sickeningly twisted. As I reached the side of the open kitchen, I closed my eyes and reached out with my fingers so that I could drag the rest of my barely willing body to look inside the room. I peered around the corner and sighed. The ragman stood in the kitchen, throwing dishes around as it flailed. Its long limbs, I determined, to be about three times the length of mine, and with its thin frame it towered at least twelve feet tall. It was hunched over, and its knees were bent, as it couldn't stand upright in the room. It moved energetically but violently, knocking over all the cutlery it could see in an anarchistic, trashing frenzy. It laughed occasionally, and that turned into a growl, as it moved its arms in a feral motion. Then it turned and looked straight at me. I was frozen in terror. And for just a second, I didn't realize that almost half of me was visible as I was peeking around the corner. It looked into my eyes and I stuttered in dumbfounded belief. It was only when the hunched figure frantically ran toward me that my instincts took over and I attempted to flee my voice uttering an automatic howl of desperate fear. There was crashing sounds as furniture was tossed around the dining room, and its excessively long legs made running meaningless. I felt an icy cold hand grip my shoulder and spin me around. My eyes were jammed shut as long, nimble fingers wrapped around my throat and I was hoisted up against the wall like a rag doll. I heard the laughter mere inches from my face and felt its breath against my cheeks. I opened my eyes and looked at it then, noticing its unnaturally large face, pale skin, and its deeply disturbing, incomprehensibly evil eyes. Its smile was extended to impossible proportions, and it spoke in a loud, gravelly, guttural voice which shook me to my core. It's rude of you. 
not to answer. Simply stared, dumbstruck by its immense stature and the ease at which it was holding me off the ground. My arms felt its hand as it kept me against the wall. My attempts to break the grip were futile. Then it spoke again. You are meant to ask who's there. I stared at it. For a moment I had forgotten that it was pinning me against the wall, and with the greatest of ease it could snap my neck. I pondered what it was saying to me, and although the words together made sense, I still didn't understand what in the world it was talking about. I simply looked at it, puzzled. After all, I've been knock-knocking for weeks now. Then it laughed with a raging force that shook my whole body, and I screamed loud and hard. The room yeah, began to spin, and I became dizzy as the overflow of impossible information started to weigh my thoughts down, and I slipped into unconsciousness. The laughter echoed in my mind until a darkness swept over me, and I was consumed by nothingness. Sounds flooded my skull, faded and distant, and I opened my eyes. It took me a moment to realize that I was lying on the dining room floor. There was no sign of the ragman. I sat up against the wall. My attention was caught by shards of plastic strewn across the floor and bent sticks of metal. It took me a few moments to figure out that the shrapnel that was lying on the dining room floor sharing the space with me was the remnants of the camera equipment that I had set up. I knew without thorough examination that there was nothing left that could be construed as tangible evidence of the supernatural. I felt alone and defeated. I felt that there was nothing that I could do. I gripped my knees as I sat there, leaning against the wall. I cried for just a moment. I stood up and gathered my will. I marched into the spare room beyond the living room, and I grabbed the painting off the wall. I couldn't tell you if the figure was back or not, because, quite frankly, at the moment I simply didn't care. Without a second thought, I broke the frame and tore the canvas into pieces. The pieces I placed in the fire and then burned them. I then walked upstairs and got dressed to leave the house. I had the eerie suspicion that I was being watched. More than that, it felt that there was always something in my peripherals just shy of the sight, waiting to grab me. That there were a thousand eyes on me at all times, but that I was alone. I grabbed my keys and my laptop. I left the house, lights on and all. I had had enough of that place. I got into my car and drove away. I didn't know where I was going, only that I was going as far away as I could. The entire journey I spotted things in the shadows, things that weren't there. I was jumping at every sound, just waiting to be ambushed. I had passed through the looking glass and now existed in a world where everything was possible. I felt that everything that we knew as a species was meaningless and that there was an entire multitude of worlds beneath the surface of ours. I knew that I would never be the same after that night. Now that we're at the end of our story, I can tell you the conclusion. This is where you come in. You see, I went to a motel room that night again, and I spent hours, and I mean hours, 
searching for any details on the ragman. I needed to know what it wanted and what I should do to rid myself of its torment. Well, the good news is that I eventually did find it. I stumbled across the old Grimm's brother tale of the ragman. As it turns out, there was a very simple way to escape his clutches and save yourself from becoming one of his victims. You see, the ragman is a tale of an entity that thrives in the fear of young children. If you want to rid yourself of the fear of the ragman, you simply tell one of your friends. You tell them every detail of the horror that the ragman puts you through and let it fester within them. The ragman is effectively a tale of ghost storytelling. Until eventually the last one cannot find someone new to tell, and the ragman reaches out to them in the depths of their nightly slumbers to make them his. That's what the painting was about. Someone must have had some problem with me or just knew that I would be attracted to horror material like that and purged themselves of the horror of the ragman. It didn't work on my friends either because I can't pass on someone else's story. You need to tell it yourself. That must have been why it did not appreciate the cameras in my house. So I've stayed up for as long as I could in this motel room writing out this story, trying to put it all into detail that I can, trying to paint you a picture of what the ragman was like for me. I have deliberately tried to terrify you, frighten you, even intrigue you slightly. That's all I need. Just enough for you to think about him for a brief moment. Tag. You're it. Thanks for joining me tonight for Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you like what you heard and would like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's episode, which includes two more terrifying tales, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, where you can sign up for a season pass and get access to all 24 ad-free extended episodes from this season, or sign up as a patron for just $5 per month and get access to not just my show, but our network's audio archive of hundreds of previous releases, including premium versions of our other shows, such as the Simply Scary Podcast and Horror Hill. Not only that, but you'll be lending your support to this very program and help me continue bringing nightmares to life each and every week. Thank you very much for your support. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. 
selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Jivey channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at Otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.